Today's guest is a photographer who I first interviewed five years ago when I first started The Candid Frame. I bumped into him recently at a gallery opening, and he said a few things during that brief conversation that really struck a chord with me. And it made me think it would be a good time to sit down and talk again with Vincent Versace. He's a wonderful photographer and has a wealth of technical knowledge in his brain, but it was his very personal and creative experience in Burma that led me to return to his home in Los Angeles. Well, welcome, Vincent, once again to the Candid Frame. Thank you. It's good to be back. Yeah, when I bumped into you uh, at the Annenberg, um, you were telling me about your trip. And what was really fascinating to me was what you said about, now I'm about paraphrase, and I probably do it very poorly, but this idea that that, that that recent time there when you were making those photographs made you feel as if you had earned your spot amongst those great photographers that you're often sitting with and teaching along with. And that was, that was really very interesting because I think so many people would look at your career and look at your work and would think, really, he thought that about his work and he's up there with those people. Oh, okay. Well, all right. It, it, um, there's a thing that you know, there's a certain point in your career or when you do this a lot, I guess in any art form, where you can look at your work and you know what is good and bad without ego. Mm -hmm. You can look at it and go, that's crap. That's okay. This is really good. And it's not you blowing up your skirt. It just, you can look at it as a piece of art for what it is because images, once they take you, and that's the real big thing, you don't take a picture, you let it take you. And if you, the more successful ones are the ones that pull you through the lens. You can look at that and you go, that, that's good. It's, it represents the feeling I had and they, they live their own journey. And there's a point in your career where you know who you're as good as, you know who you're better than, and you know who is better than you. And you, you just know it. And that's, you, you just know it by looking at people's work. And this last experience shooting in Myanmar, Burma was an experience where I went to another place. It's like when you act on stage and you have an actor who is greater than you are, that actor who is more talented and greater than you are pulls you up because you have to step up to the plate to be able to match that level. And when you're done, you're changed. You're better for the experience mm -hmm. and that experience echoes through the rest of your career until the next time that you get pulled up at a different level. And this last experience was an epiphany moment for me where that, that occurred. It is the best work I've ever done. And I honestly do feel that I can now sit at the big kid's table. Yeah. It's, it's like Miles Davis. We all, all think that Miles Davis is a great musician. The album in which he felt he became Miles Davis was kind of blue. When you read about him, it, was, it wasn't until that album that all of the things that are Miles Davis gelled into one thing and became his signature sound, his signature way of interpreting music. And at that moment, that's where he felt he was the most successful. And for me, this last shoot was my kind of blue moment. What do you think it was about this, this trip? What were the circumstances that allowed you to push through in that way where all the other times that you've been around all around these other photographers and you've had the opportunity to, to shoot, it didn't happen. What made this special? What made this different? Well, prior to going to Burma to do this, I was in Alaska on assignment shooting. So I was doing nothing but nonstop shooting for a piece that will eventually uh, come out in American photo on Alaska. And I would, I took a, I took a cruise, a princess cruise, and I spent two weeks just shooting and just shooting, just shooting, just shooting. It was the first time that I had gone out shooting in an environment like that without a small army of either students or a crew, mm -hmm. that it was just me and the camera. Then I went to Myanmar 
36 hours after getting back from Alaska. So I went from freezing cold to boiling hot. Through the course of negotiating this deal to shoot, I'd, I'd wanted to photograph Aung San Suu Kyi. I figured, well, you know, what the hay? What's the worst that could happen? Right? No. I'm no worse off than I am, right? So I sent out an email and I wrote this beautifully eloquent email talking about how I would love to do this formal portrait of the lady and yada, yada, yada. What I get back is I do not see myself as a movie star or a model, which if I looked back at the email that I wrote, that is basically what I was telling her I was going to do. So what she responded back was, was no, no, not not going to do that. So can't leave well enough alone. I'm not going to be deterred by no. No has never really stopped me before. So I kept writing back and forth and back and forth. And what I got back was formal access can be, or informal access can be granted if you promise to do right with the pictures. Now it wasn't right by her. It was right whatever that manifested itself as for me to do with those pictures. And what I believe that my, what right is, is to tell this, to tell the story. Mm. Okay. To tell the story as I was taken by the experience of being there. And so I showed up, I landed, I was informed as I'm getting out of the airport that we are going to photograph the lady. Now I have been flying for 27 hours. I'm not all in Burma just yet. Yeah. <laughs> so show up. She's two and a half hours late to this birthday party. I'm rained on twice through monsoons. And then she shows up and I photographed, I, I got to experience something I had never seen. I've photographed a lot of people in my career that have the it quality, but I have never experienced in my life the ability to take the it quality and make the person that has the it quality be the person talking to someone. So when she was, someone was talking to her and she was talking to them, that person in front of her became the it person. And that the more that they tried to put her on this pedestal, the more humble and more open and more receptive she became to connect with them. And one of the great advantages of being a photographer is that you're allowed to see a world that many people walk by. And there's a, a, a belief, a, a quote, Mies van der Rohe said, an interesting plainness is the most difficult thing to achieve. And I have really worked in my career to make my job to be about finding interesting plainnesses. To It's a mountain, it's a rocks, these are clouds. Right. Um, this is a set of steps you walk by, but there's beauty in that, that there's, there's something in that there's gesture in it. And my job is to see that and to say here, stop for a second, check this out, take pause. How much of your joy over these photographs is about not so much the photographs themselves, but what sounds to me as the, the fact that you seem to have been more present in in those moments than you may have been previously. Am I am I on point when I'm in what I'm describing, or no? I need to go a little way out to come back to that point. Okay. So bear with me. Um, in my life, I have felt the experience of hearing a prayer heard. I have witnessed a prayer being answered, and I'm trained in something called uh, ALBA emoting, behavioral effector patterning. It's part of my training as an actor, which is, I went to acting school and now I'm here, which is to replicate the biomechanics of emotion in my body, okay? Akin to lie to me. One of the things that I can do is I can tell if you're authentic or inauthentic and all that. One of the parts of the training is to understand how emotion feels on you. So you're very aware of your sensation. I have felt something greater than me move through me as I shoot is the only way to explain it, which is why I don't think that whatever credit I get assigned for pictures 
has much to do with me. It has to do with connecting into the collective unconscious, whatever deity you believe in, whatever. But there's something greater that I feel and when I shoot. And in this instance, getting back to a state of being more present, when I witnessed the experience of her with people and witnessed the way in which no matter how many people came at her, she was always centered, present, humble, and it was always about the needs of those in front of her. She doesn't, I mean, my guess from just the things I've read is that that's not a job she asked for, you know, mm -hmm. who would ask for that, that life. It's a job that she has to do because she has to do it. It's the right thing to do. And when you, when I witnessed that, I, I realized what doing right meant. And I was damned if I was going to let this person down that I doubt remembers me because just being in that experience of that, that energy, that, that presence. So yes, I was more present than I've ever been as a photographer. And I prior to that moment thought I was pretty damn present when I take a picture. And what has changed is every picture that I have taken since then echoes with that experience mm -hmm. and something change. I can feel it in my body. I can feel it. People feel it when they talk to me, particularly when I talk about these pictures, that there is something different that when I look at the pictures of Alaska, which really did a nice job on them, they're nowhere near as powerful as the pictures of Myanmar, even though I think I did a very good job and I did right by them. Okay. And I look at my other work and I have glimpses of this experience, but not, I mean, you saw the 84 pictures I just showed you, right? Every one of those, it's just, they're there. It's, there's, there's yeah. a, a quality, an ineffable quality of presence that comes from reflecting that experience back. One of the things that hit home that I'm, I've been dwelling on since this moment. It's interesting how a small moment can have years of ramification, which was a conversation I had had with my guide and her assistant, which was, I had asked, what is the word in Burmese for please? And they just like, they, they didn't know what to say. And then finally it's like, well, we don't have a word for please. We don't have a word for please. It's like, well, no, nor do we say thank you as much as you do. <laughs> and, um, it's, you need to stop doing that because please and thank you in our society is implied in everything we do. That that's everything we do is please and thank you. And when we say thank you for something, it's because you've done something that is so life changing, so profound that it warrants comment above and beyond what you should do, which is right. And then the response is basically something to the effect of why are you thanking me? Just doing what I'm supposed to. And so her assistant said to me, you might want to consider that for a day. And it wasn't with malice or ego. It was just, you might want to consider trying just going through the day with please and thank you implied in everything you do. Mm -hmm. And I sat there in Burma for the next 10 days, just dwelling on that. So I'm on a plane going to New York to photo East, which I, was about a week after this experience. And so I'm sitting on this plane and this woman is going to photo East as well. I gather, and she's got this big bag and she's like five one. And this bag is like six, four, and she's trying to get it up into the overhead. And so I just get up, I put the bag in for her. I take care of everything. Is there anything else you need? Can I do that? And she goes, thank you. And I just looked at her and go, you don't need to thank me. Just doing what I'm supposed to. And I, I sit down and I'm reading and I look up and about half an hour into the flight, she gets up to check to see if I took anything out of the bag because she couldn't believe mm. that somebody would simply do something nice just to right. do it. And since then, I go out of my way to try and do please and thank you was implied in everything I do. And I try to get it so that in my photographs, please and thank yous implied in my pictures, 
that my job now is to do right by everything I photograph. And that really changes the way you spin things. Like I'm driving my publisher crazy right now because of this black and white book where I've gone back and remolded the book because what I want to do is write the book that does right by the person I've never met. That I'm going to write this book that sorts out all of the stuff that everybody thinks you're that everybody thinks you're already supposed to know. Mm. Like Dmax, yeah. my favorite one. Like you say, oh Dmax, everybody. Will. <laughs> do you know the math behind it? Do you know what it means? Do you know why it's important? You know, and it's like so. How do you discuss this, and how do you discuss a way of thinking that makes these facts useful tools? And it, um, I got my Ted Wait. You know, God love him. <laughs> right? You have Ted, right? Yeah, yeah. God love him. I think he's losing his hair solely because of me. <laughs> you know, um, and I think the ulcers that he must have are completely because of me driving him nuts. This this perspective. Do you think that, that what it's changing is a couple of things? Is the way I read it is that it's changing what you see, not, not, not what you see, but how you see, and making and allowing you to make sort of different choices in terms of the moment you choose to capture and how you you capture it. I, I know I'm trying to translate this sort of very emotional experience with look with at that happening. Okay. If you can describe it for us. All right. It's, um, I, I have a fascination with the back of shopping malls. Okay. Okay. I, I don't know why, but I love to go behind malls and see all the half thrown out mannequins and displays. And it just, it's always fascinated me. So when I was in India, it's a photograph of the Taj Mahal. And instead of taking to the front of the Taj Mahal in which everybody photographs, what I wanted to see was the back of the mall. Now this, I had to almost break the arm off of the guide to take me to this place. And when you look at that picture, can you tell me what year it was shot? Oh, I would have no idea. Okay. Yeah. It could have been a hundred be years. It could have been. All right. Yeah. So one of the things that I want to see is timeless. And one of the things that is changing is that if you open yourself up to not pre-visualize a photograph that the only thing that you pre-visualize is you pre-visualize yourself being amazed that you walk in to a situation where I don't know. I don't care. All I know is that it will like Dwayne said, I find the stage and the players will come mm -hmm. that he would set up the shot, not based on what's in the shot, but on the background, sit down, have a cup of coffee and wait for crap to come into his frame. Great idea. Change the way I shoot pictures. This is, I want to photograph a timeless picture where you have no idea. It still exists in the world. Mm -hmm. That could be 20 days after they built the Taj Mahal. It could be yesterday. The whole thing about this being present, and you can see this manifested in a file. If you go to channels in a file, look at the red, green, and blue channel. You'll have three channels that are different, grays but of the same image structure. All three will be different interpretations of the same thing. So what I try to do when I shoot is that I try to open myself up, not to what it is that I think I should shoot, but be open to what it is that there is to shoot that will take me, which means slowing down and getting out of my head and having as little of my ego in the photograph as possible. Yeah. I have never been accused of being a man of small ego, <laughs> nor will I argue with that. But what I can promise you is that what you'll never see in my photograph is that ego. Yeah, I often refer to that, that the editor, the one who's making all the judgments, you know, as you're sitting at home, oh, this is worth photographing, this isn't worth photographing, even before you've made the photograph. Yeah, what you should do is tie that editor up in a chair, stuff a sock, a dirty sock, in their mouth, and then throw them in a closet. That you, the simple thing that I work very hard at getting is the, a balance between camera technique and not having to think about it so that I can simply be taken by the photograph. That the thing that causes the finger to fire is the, that emotional tug where you, oh, Boom. The minute you get that tug, yeah. 
right? But there are problems with photography that you have to deal with because all of your, it's a double-edged sword. All of your problems should be solved at point of capture. They should not be solved in software. You can't fix a photograph. You can save it maybe, but you can't fix it. And, you know, post-processing is not a verb. Photoshop is not a verb. So, for example, if I have a photograph of two kids and they're one's behind the other and they're both smiling and laughing, the problem is if I photograph the front kid, the back kid's out of focus. If I photograph the back kid, the front kid's out of focus. Because with digital, resolution's different than it is with film, which is that the camera sees, the lens sees 200 line pair, which is 200 black and white lines per millimeter. The sensor sees 200 line pair, and printers can print upwards of 300 line pairs. So what you have is an output device that has greater resolution than the file you're sending it. Whereas with silver, the lens saw 200, the film saw 150 to 175, and the paper printed 75. Mm -hmm. So anything above 75 lost, which means it wasn't that everything was in focus in that area of depth of field. It was just that they were all uniformly not in focus. So, yes, I could get the illusion of both pictures, both faces being in focus by stopping the lens down on film and silver paper, whereas in digital, not going to happen because physics says the only thing that's in focus is that which the lens is physically focused upon and anything that crosses the plane of focus. So you learn how to see the moment, be taken by it, and then develop the ability to go boom, boom, to shoot very, very fast. And that takes practice so that you're not thinking about it. So it's a balancing act by developing your technique to the point where it's reflexive and it's not something you think about so that what can occur is that instead of noodling and using, you know, IQ points to do the math of the photograph, that what's happened is that part of the brain is in firmware mode and it does what it does. And the heart and the mind can connect to the eye and the unconscious eye, the eye that sees can connect up to the conscious eye, the eye that feels. And what you can do is work, in tandem with each other and create an image. And all of this has to happen. Yeah. And that just takes practice. And, and, uh, and I, and I tell people that I have a lot, it takes practice to get to a point where regardless of how you may be feeling initially, that once you get out there and you start walking the street and you start raising the camera to your eye and you start making the pictures that you can get into that. But if you wait for that moment to come upon you without taking the photograph, it never it's like it's watching never TV. Happen. Yeah. You know, um, no, you, you have to take the picture. Now, I shot 33,700-something frames when I was in Burma. Yikes. Well, <laughs> my belief is I don't believe in drive-by shooting, you know, which is like, got it, thank you, got to move on. Everything happens at the speed of life. And what I'm going to try and do is record the experience of life because the camera works in fractions of a second. I work in continuous time. What makes one moment more decisive than the other? If I have 125th of a second capture, what made that 125th of a second more decisive than the other 124? Because it took me. Mm -hmm. But just because it took me once doesn't mean it isn't going to take me again. Um, there was a, there's a voice teacher, Cicely Berry. I went to Boston University School of Fine Art. And what we did with the voice teachers that were trained by her was do five things with your character. Pick five choices about your character. Okay, great. Throw those away. Pick five more. Write those down. Great. Throw those away. Pick five more. Okay. Throw those away. Pick 10 more. Okay. Now pick three of those. Do those. Acting is doing and there's always more to do. Mm -hmm. Photography is experiencing, and there is always more to experience. The thing you got to get out of your head, okay? Um, and I'm going to say, I'm going to paraphrase a quote, and it's out of this book, okay? The book I just gave you is what? The French Laundry Cookbook it's a by cookbook. Thomas Keller. Okay, okay, by Thomas Keller. If you, ex if you accept the premise that there is no such thing as a perfect photograph, only the idea of it, then the purpose of photography becomes clear, which is to move the viewer. And the most important viewer to be moved is the first viewer. Who's the first viewer? You. Okay. Now, if you look at his intro to his book, okay, the introduction, just read the first sentence. Okay. It says, <clears throat> pleasure and perfection, 
when you acknowledge, as you must, that there is no such thing as perfect food, only the idea of it, when the real purpose of striving towards perfection becomes clear, to make people happy. That's okay. what cooking is all about. That's what cooking is all about. Yeah. The other thing to keep in mind is that the more creative things that you do, other than just take pictures, the more creative you will be in your chosen metaphor of expression. All creativity comes from the same place. It's just how you choose to manifest it. If all you do is play one note, what will happen is you may find a groove, but eventually a groove becomes a rut, the rut becomes a hole, the hole becomes a grave, and nobody sees you, and you don't see anybody, and you wonder where your career went. I cook. I will never be as good as the cooks that I know. I will never, ever be as good a cook. But that doesn't change the fact that I pursue that with the same passion that I pursue photography. What I've learned along the way of doing all of this, it's like I read cookbooks like some people watch porn. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's just, well, look at this, right? I mean, how many cookbooks can, can a man have? Mm-hmm. Um, and I have found some of the greatest lessons of photography to be found in the discovery of people that make things that disappear after you eat them. Yeah. I think one of the things about being a creative person is that you can go back and forth from, and I use myself as an example, as, as going back and forth from abject insecurity to uncomfortable arrogance, mm-hmm. you know, and sort of go back and forth. And yet, when I'm in the best place, I'm sort of in, in the middle, uh, and I'm not... In either place, I'm kind of like, I'm as good as I can be today, accept that, and take joy in the practice of photography right. or, or whatever I'm doing, which is just a marvelous place to be. But um, sometimes that can be a challenge to find your way there. I mean, for me, sometimes it's very easy when I'm out there and I'm shooting, mm-hmm. but in the times when I'm not, and I just have myself to sort of ponder on the work that I've created and the work that I wish I hadn't created, I can get into that miasma of, of oh, yeah, negativity. A, so how do you, I mean, that's, that's me, but I'm curious in terms of your, your take on that and how do you sort of pull yourself out there, particularly in those moments where you're not actively shooting and you're in the midst of all the other things you have to do in the course of your life. There are two things that I know how to do. There are three things, but we'll only talk about two of them. Um, I know how to take a picture and I know how to cook a a meal. Those are the two things that I know how to do. It's like when you're in the morning, when you wake up and you look in the mirror, right? You know what you can do. You know what you can't do. You got to get to the point where you can accept that in you. There are enough people in the world that will beat you up, Right. And the person that beats yourself up the most is generally sitting in the same chair you are. Okay, so if there are enough people in the world that will beat you up, you do not need to assist them. The problem is that there is this voice in you that says that this isn't good or you shouldn't do that or, you know. So let me ask you, in the world of, in the non-art world, is vulnerability a weakness or a strength? Your banker. Do you want a vulnerable banker? Oh, no. No, okay, no. Right. Um, do you want an innocent banker? No. No, no, you don't want an innocent banker, right? In the world of art, is vulnerability a weakness or a strength? Strength. And is innocence a weakness or a strength? Strength. Okay, yeah. and emotionally open, weakness yeah. or strength? Okay. Strength. So the strengths of one are the weakness of the other. The only thing that both worlds agree upon is that naive is not something you want to be. Mm-hmm. The problem that most people have is that when you were a kid, your mom, your dad, your aunts, your uncles, all told you to do things to keep you safe. All right? Don't cry. Don't show them that you're vulnerable because they'll get to you. Okay? The issue is that in the art world, the most successful art is the art that got to you. The most successful photograph is the photograph that when you witnessed it brought you to tears. Okay? I cannot tell you how many times I have been rendered to crying as I have shot. And I'm 6'2", and I'm a big guy, you know, I'm supposed to be tough. I, I, I cry at movies, you know. I, and the point is that the strength of one is the weakness of the other, and you have got to, you're moving in the one world, 
the civilian world, as my um, master acting teacher used to refer to it, Tad Danielewski, and you're an artist. So you're walking through the world where vulnerability is a weakness, where you are a warrior of where vulnerability is a strength. And you have to reconcile that, which is coming to a conversation with this voice that everybody that loved you and cared about you planted in you. That's job is that when you go to these places, it is to keep you from doing that, to keep you safe. And the thing that you need to say to them is, I know that that's your job. And when I'm in this world out here, yes, do that. But when I'm in this world, creative world, what's happening is you're keeping me from being successful. And once you have that conversation with yourself, and once you realize that your job is to do that, then what happens is things change. Yeah. Okay. And it's not the easiest conversation to have. The journey to it may be a long journey, but the moment of change happens in an instant. And I just invite everybody to consider if you've chosen to create, why would you choose something that you eat your liver to do for a hobby? Why do people do that? They love photography. They fall in love with it. They love painting. They fall in love with that. And then they proceed to beat themselves up because they're never as good as the people that they fell in love with. I will never be as good as Cartier-Bresson. I will never be as good as Joseph Sudak. I will never be as good as Karsh. I will never be as good as Ansel Adams. I will only be as good as Vincent Versace. And that's the only person that I need to compete with. Should I remove the Brisson qualities from my photograph? Should I remove the uh, Win Bullet qualities, the Sudak qualities? No. All of those things should exist, and they exist as a harmonic. I'm only as good as the images that have moved me. I mean, I have one photograph that when I look at, I can constantly see a combination of two photographs that were the ones that really decided it for me for, for photography. One's a Eugene Smith photograph of the two kids walking down the, yeah. the road. And the other is a Win Bullock photograph of the little kid walking down the street with the trees or the, the dirt road. I saw those photographs when I was eight years old and I was just, it just took me. And I can see that photograph, those two photographs echo through a lot of my work. I can see Josef Sudek's work echo through my work. Not that I rip them off or copy them, but what I can see is the quality of what it was about them that moved me to them, mm -hmm. to those shots. Will I ever be as good as them? No. And nor should that matter. Everybody has something to say. Everybody has something valid to say. And if you are so moved to have to take a picture of it, that need in you is important enough that it needs to be heard. It should be heard. You know, why should you study technique? The problem with technique is that people make photographs all about technique. Like, forgive me in advance. High dynamic range photography. The art of making a photograph look like a Harry Potter set. <laughs> um, if you, you're sitting in my house, right, and I have a ton of photographs up on the walls, most of them are HDR pictures in the sense that they use techniques to extend dynamic ranges. So it's the extension of focus, the extension of exposure, the extension of blur, all sorts of things. But when you're, when I'm done, you can't tell technique should be in support of freeing the voice so that the voice doesn't have to yell to be heard. Yeah. I think that the technique doesn't supply vision, doesn't supply the ability to, to see. And, and on that point, let's talk a bit about you know, available light because we've talked a little bit uh, about that and we're both big proponents of being able not just use light, but to be able to see it so that you can do something more with it. And looking at your images, I think that's, that's, that's always what struck me was that when I looked at your photographs, it was like, even when I couldn't quantify it, mm -hmm. but now that I, I can, what struck me was how you use light and shadow and the relationship between those two to, to control my experience of the photographs. I was in, I was in Paris and I went to the Dorsay mm -hmm. and I went to um, the Louvre. I love photographs. Oh, and, the Louvre, my God. And I went there and I saw how the painters used that same concept of light and dark, particularly, um, um, I, I never pronounce this 
word right? The chiascuro? Church scroll. That process. And when I saw that painters had been using this for forever, and then I saw that that quality of being able to control the visual experience by light and dark, and that relationship between mm -hmm. the two, it was... It was revelatory. Did you did you go see Mona Lisa? I did see Mona Lisa. that gallery going to her. Those yeah. pictures they have in that gallery. Um, you know, I I went. I wanted to see the Mona Lisa, and um, by the time I made it to see the Mona Lisa, mm -hmm. the Louvre was closing. <laughs> and it was like, oh shit! I better go see this movie, this picture. All right, there's some things to understand about vision. Okay, the way your eye works, the biomechanics of the eye. It, I think it is more important to pay attention to the biomechanics of the eye than the arbitrary rules of composition. Because what's looking at the picture? Yeah. A, a set of literary events to explain something or how your eye hard sees something. Play my silly game for a second. What's the fastest thing in the universe? Light. Doesn't it amaze you that dark seems to be there before it? <laughs> okay, that's Sir Terry Pratchard, right? Um, the thing that people forget which is why I sometimes have an extreme issue with strobe light. Not that I have, I don't use it, not that I don't know how to use it, and not that there is not a use for it, there is. Is that people forget that where there's light, there needs to be dark. Okay, where there is light, I'm sorry, where there is light, there needs to be dark. Okay. All right? That dark in a photograph is as important to the photograph as the light in the photograph. The other thing to keep in mind is what the word photography literally translates from in Greek, which is photographies to write with light. You're a light writer. Mm -hmm. When I photograph something, I treat light as if it's a solid object. I don't just treat it as it's just there. It's solid. Eugene Smith he preferred to have dark images and then one light area because he felt that that worked best visually. Well, it does because the way the eye works, it goes to patterns that it recognizes first from light to dark. So it will go to the lightest object in the photograph, then to the other objects and so on. Mm -hmm. The most important thing about the way the eye works is it doesn't want to look at anything. It's always in a seek mode. So your job visually is to create an image in which the viewer cannot stop looking at, which we get back to controlling how the eye sees based on the mechanics of sight. There are many, many trippy things that you can do. Your, your way your eye sees and perceives knowing things. For example, if I took two squares, rectangles, that are exactly the same gray, 128 middle gray, and you look at them, they would appear, if it's on a white sheet of paper, to be the same gray. But if I put a black behind it and a light gray behind it, those two grays that we know are the same gray, one would appear darker and one would appear lighter, even though they are the same gray. Mm -hmm. So it is understanding how you control perception, visual perception, that matters. Gilchrist wrote a book, um, Seeing Black and White, which is a great book to read, on understanding just how trippy things are. Or if you have an opportunity, go to Google and Google White's Illusion and take a look at White's Illusion. And once you start understanding how to control the eye, you have to understand whose job is it to control the viewer's eye? It's yours, your picture. Okay. So when you're going into post-processing, you have to make decisions about how you want the eye to journey through your photograph, which are the considerations that I make about technique. That first the photograph has to move me, and once the picture takes me, that's when I start to seek out what are the parts that I need to make this a more successful experience. And that informs what ends up being your composition. Because Correct. then you start taking ownership of everything that's in that frame with those considerations in mind. Correct. Yeah. And the thing to keep in mind is like you have to look at the qualities of light. One of the issues I have with strobe light is that it has hard edges. Even if you diffuse it, there tends to be a um, smaller ramp uh, from light to dark than there is in sunlight. Natural light's directional and ambient at the same time. Like in this room, we have no lights turned on, right? But my entire face is lit. You see how smooth the transition mm -hmm. is here? 
To be able to get that level of smoothness would require a room the size of an aircraft carrier with a bank of strobes, you know, at one end and you're at the other. So it's doable, but the barrier to entry in natural light is walk out the door. What you see is what you get with continuous light. That's what I like. Strobe is sometimes a bit of psychic lighting and it's a little bit more math than I like. And when I'm in the studio and I have to work that way, there's far more pre-visualization in it than I prefer. I prefer to light in a ball and then have people be able to move around in that ball and to have the nuance of shade and light work so that it's a far more organic experience. Not to say that it's not replicatable in strobe, it's just a lot easier to step outside the door, throw a diffuser up, and we're done. You were hearing when I talked to you last about some things that you're going to be doing in the near future revolving that. Do you want to tell us a little about Well, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to in March to, uh, to do a, a website, a blog called The Sunnest, which is, um, you know, the, not the, the art, not the science of light. Okay, that there's an art to it. <clears throat> and um, I believe that uh, real photographers light with thermal nuclear devices. <laughs> and it's, I've always, I've been a real big proponent of natural light and, and continuous light. And knowing what I know, with the, we're about to hit a perfect storm in everything. With the advent of cameras like Nikon's D4, with th- that ability, the ability to have super high ISO with the noise of 100 ISO, means that lower intensity light sources can now be used, which means that LEDs can now be used. Lower intensity light is prettier than high intensity light, even though it'll measure the same. So it has a different look, a different feel. So having the ability to control light like this, the thing that's driving this is something that nobody thought would matter in a still camera, which is video. Video was an afterthought, like, oh my God, we got to put something on one of these cameras. Wow, we got this video, Kodak. Throw it on there. Who'd have thought, right? Well, you can't light a movie with the strobe. You can light a movie with the light that's outside, so you're going to see a big change. The barrier to entry is open the door. That's pretty powerful stuff. The barrier to entry can be under $1,000 instead of over $1,000. Yeah. You don't have to worry about batteries. Now, granted, sunset's my kryptonite, but um, it's just this is the light we grew up with. There's nothing prettier than natural light. Everything else is an, is an attempt to mimic it. Well, why mimic it? Why not go to it? You fire a strobe out in a... Um, a mall or a, a, a Medina or a bazaar or wherever you're shooting. Everybody knows where the photographer is. Okay. You're busted. You know, you're making the news. You can't yeah. get those spontaneous moments An absolute spontaneity, get absolute truth. That's what you want. You don't want to edit. Not even though you may be telling the truth, you cease being spontaneous. Spontaneous is what matters. If you look at all of my work, it's not, it may be all set up, lit, and control, but I let the subject loose. It's why I shoot as much as I shoot. I, I photograph at the speed of life, which is both faster than slower than the speed of light at the same time. And people are their best posers. Mm-hmm. You know your body better than I know your body, right? And the pose you're striking right now, that's organic to you, and it tells your story. My job is to tell your story. I... I approach photographing portraits as if they're landscapes, and I approach photographing landscapes as if they're portraits, which is why I do both disciplines of photography. When I'm doing a portrait, I have to tell the totality of you in one shot. When I'm doing a landscape, I have to show the portrait of the mountain range in its best light. Mm -hmm. And learning those disciplines and having them cross-pollinate, learning the disciplines of other art forms, inhabits what you do you're only as good as you you know you want to have happy photographs live a happy life Mm. you want to have great photographs have a great life you know 
Um, McNally says, you want to take better shots, stand in front of better stuff. <laughs> it's like, it's absolutely true. You want to have more interesting photographs, stand in front of more interesting stuff. Yeah. You know? Well, my last question for you, you've answered once before, but I'm going to throw it at you again. And that's, I ask each guest to recommend the work of another photographer. It can be someone you've long admired or someone you recently discovered, but I, I open it up to you. It doesn't necessarily have to be a photographer. It can be some other creative as well that you think that people should check out and discover for themselves. So who would that be for you and why? Um, I'll give you two if I can. One's a photographer and one's not. All right. All right. If you ever have the opportunity to take the, take a look at the work of a photographer named Jesse Diamond. Jesse Diamond. Okay. Jesse Diamond. Um... Jesse Diamond's work, every time I look at it, every time I look at his stuff, I always have this one thought, which in photography is the ultimate compliment. How did my photograph get in your camera? <laughs> I look at his stuff and I just, I think the world of that man's work. Just, just amazing photography. Somebody you actually should talk to. Okay. The other artist is the one that has had probably the most profound influence on my work. And I'll tell you a little story about it. It's in, in my new book. Um, it's, it's a chef named John Fraser in a restaurant called Dovetail. And I had the opportunity to spend a week in his kitchen. I had traded him artwork for his restaurant to, to work in his kitchen. And... Throughout the whole thing, I uh, there's this hierarchy of how you you do things, and so I, I I made it to making ingredient, which is the stuff that will go into stuff, mm -hmm. which was a big deal. Oh my God, I died and gone to heaven, you know. And and this was the first week in 25 years in which nobody asked me a question. All I did was ask questions. I was so out of my depth in this restaurant so out of my depth and I thought when I walked in I was you know yeah <laughs> absolutely not the sous chef gave me the best compliment of the week when I asked him well, how'd I do and he said um, well you mostly weren't in the way so I was like yeah. alright so I'm, 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 I'm cutting carrots okay and I'm cutting carrots basically to the size of pixels for this dish and I'm just cutting these carrots and Chef Fraser walks by and he stops and he looks at him and he looks at his watch and he looks at him and he goes are, are you are you practicing? And I look up at him, and apparently the look on my face was like a dial tone, because I, I, I'm preparing ingredient. And he goes, oh, 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 you're preparing ingredient. Um, and his voice doesn't get past here. Then uh, those aren't acceptable. We're t I'm just thinking, <laughs> they're carrots, dude. They're pixel-sized carrots. What do you mean? These are not acceptable. And apparently that comes across my face and goes, you don't know why they're not acceptable. Okay. Let's start with the, the understanding I know you have, which is the composition of this dish. It's a soup is circles and squares that I'm putting squares in circular shapes in a circular bowl. Okay. These aren't square. These are diamonds and rectangles. So they don't work compositionally. Got that, didn't I? <laughs> so you can imagine what level of bonehead I'm feeling, right? So, oh, oh, okay. And he says, but that's not the bigger, biggest problem. There's a bigger problem. At which point I'm thinking, this is going to go deeper. There's a bigger problem. Because they were regularly shaped of a regular size, when we infuse the soup, they will cook differently, which means that mm -hmm. some parts of this will be mushy and some parts of this will be too firm because one of the things that they do in this restaurant is everything's done by weight and measured temperature and, you know, it's nuts. Like your coffee that you had is 15 grams. Why? I measured it to find out what made the perfect cup of coffee and that's what you get, 15 grams. And it's ground at a specific time and the reason why it's done that is to get the bean at the right size have to do it once and set it, but it's done. And this comes from this conversation. So because of that, not only have you disrupted the visual experience, you've disrupted the dining experience. 
This is the deal. We produce dishes here that are so visually beautiful, you don't want to eat them. And then when you eat them, they taste better than they look. My job is to please the diner. Okay, and you've disrupted that. Everything matters. Everything dovetails into everything else. It's why I named the restaurant Dovetail. And I just sat there and it was... Wow. And he calls the intern over and says, could you please cut these? Go back to making the hors d'oeuvres and I'm sitting with... <laughs> so at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm going home. I stop off at a bodega on the way home. I buy four bunches of carrots. And I proceeded to just chop those carrots up until the next day when I got put back on doing ingredient, doing the same thing. Yeah. He walks by, he looks at it, and he goes, all right, you know that dish you wanted me to teach you how to make? We'll make that tomorrow. And the, the lesson is everything matters. Everything dovetails into everything else. And technique is just the means to your voice. And the two artists that have had the... The artist whose visual work I love is Jesse Diamond, and actually the artist who had the most profound effect on me in the last 10 years. Mm. Okay? I hate to say this even more so than Maisel. And, I mean, come on, we're talking yeah. Maisel. And uh, it has to be that one experience, again, how a small moment colors the entire experience. And carrots it's funny friends send me carrots now <laughs> so where can people find out about everything that you're doing uh versacephotography.com just put up a new website where i have a couple hundred pictures up that i'm going to constantly be putting things up i have a new book coming out which is from oz to kansas almost every black and white conversion technique known to man why you shouldn't and when you should and uh that hopefully god willing comes out end of march beginning of april great well thanks again thank you Candid Frame is supported by donations by people just like you. You can contribute to the show by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com where you'll find other resources about our guests as well as articles and links we think you'll find valuable. The show is edited by Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>